Today on Tax Justice Warriors, the focus is on tax court, specifically tax litigation. What is unique to tax court and what is common to any other court when it comes to a trial? That is the focus of today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I'm your host, William Schmidt, the director of the Low-Income Taxpayer Clinic at Kansas Legal Services. For today's episode of Tax Justice Warriors, I am returning to the Washburn School of Law tax procedure course that I taught last semester, and I am focusing once again on tax court, specifically on tax litigation. Now, the framework for my lecture on tax court started out with general trial procedures and then focused on unique procedures to the tax court. So as I went through on general trial procedures, I had the students do direct examination exercises, and for some of them, This was the first experience they had had in doing this kind of trial prep work, of doing this kind of exercise when it comes to trials. And so I think it was a good experience. We focused on some different issues with taxes that may come up in a trial, such as claiming business expenses or credits that might have been taken on a tax return But also going through in general trial procedure, there is cross-examination, opening statements, closing statements, and then other items mentioned judicial notice, refreshing recollection, past recollection, introducing documents, witnesses, impeachment, prior inconsistent statements, rehabilitation, hearsay, and discovery. Now, I'm going to touch a little bit on those points, but mainly I'm going to bring up some items that are unique procedures to tax court, and I will be supplementing them with my notes from the tax litigation course I took at Villanova Law School, taught by David Breen and Ron Collins. So the first item I'm going to note is that If you are going into a tax court trial, it is always good to have a copy of the Internal Revenue Code and the Federal Rules of Evidence handy for you, especially if you are going to be using one of those at some point during a trial. Now, as I go through my notes, some of these items may seem a bit random, but hopefully these are some nuggets that will be useful to you in thinking about tax litigation. So I believe I mentioned stipulations in a prior episode, but generally these are facts or documents that both parties agree upon that can be introduced into the court record. Since these stipulations are agreed upon evidence, then there is no need to spend time on them at trial trying to introduce them into evidence before the judge, going through the process of whether anyone objects to them as evidence or not, since they are already stipulated and admitted into evidence, then that speeds up the trial. And I mentioned that 
some main items that might be stipulated are the facts that the taxpayer filed a specific tax return with certain claims on it, and the IRS sent their notice to the taxpayer, perhaps a notice of deficiency that disallowed certain items on the tax return. So the stipulations are often that the document was mailed from one party to the other. They're not stipulating as to the truth or veracity of the item claimed on the document. They're just admitting that the document was mailed from one party to the other, that it exists, so it can be admitted into evidence. Judicial notice, those are general facts not subject to reasonable dispute. So one example is that the tax court could take judicial notice that April 15, 2012 was a Sunday. Example two, the tax court could take judicial notice of the distance for mileage claimed on a tax return. Now, when it comes to going through the case, a low-income taxpayer clinic, those might be the first people who actually reviewed the tax case before the client's case gets to appeals. It might have been the point here being that the IRS often has automated items that, especially when getting to a notice of deficiency, it may just be that the tax return was reviewed electronically, or while there may have been some human interaction, it may have been low level, just generally that there is an issue sent to the taxpayer to correct, and there may not have been any in-depth analysis until the taxpayer goes to a tax clinic or an attorney, their preparer, a CPA, an enrolled agent, someone for assistance, that that may be the first person who actually analyzed the tax case rather than someone at the IRS really dissecting it and determining what reasons whether it should go to trial or not. So when it does get to appeals, they are tasked to, to resolve the cases before litigation. 90% of cases settle. They look at the facts as they currently, currently exist and then compare them to the cost of litigation, such as the availability of witnesses and whether there is a split of authority with regard to the subject matter of the case. If a petition is filed, it is assigned to the IRS attorney who files an answer. When there are enough clients that want to go to the same city for litigation with regard to a tax court trial, then a date of trial is set by the tax court. Then those cases have a deadline to be settled or go to litigation. Now remember, the government cannot collect a tax unless there has been an assessment of the tax. There is no assessment until the statutory notice of deficiency has been sent, and this gives a taxpayer due process rights. With regard to jurisdiction, after 91 days, if there has been no petition filed with the tax court, then the petition is not allowed presuming that the court finds there is no more jurisdiction for the case. The rules of evidence, 
It used to be that it was the federal rules of evidence as applied in Washington, D.C., but now they are applied as to the circuit that the court is in. Some suggestions they gave for opening statements and closing statements were to just take five minutes for an opening statement and not even do a closing statement in tax court. There will be a 90-day briefing period. It was another reminder to redact social security numbers when you're including a notice of determination or any other IRS notices with the tax court petition. Now, turning to evidence with the stipulations, agreed exhibits are marked beginning with 1J. You offer into evidence two copies of the stipulations and one set of evidence. Evidence specifically offered by the petitioner only should be marked with a P, so starting with 1P, perhaps. By the respondent, they shall be marked with an R, and offered jointly would be marked with a J. Now, documentary evidence has to be exchanged 15 days before the trial, and looking at the small tax court cases, the S cases, I mentioned this before, but there is little to no formal use of the rules of evidence. This is because the judge can sort it out, and everything is generally admissible. As a requirement, that the case, it's usually anything under $50,000 in controversy, including the penalty, but there is no right to appeal the small tax court case. Subpoenas have a broader power for tax court than other courts. The court may subpoena anyone throughout the United States rather than the usual limit of 100 miles for other courts. To shift the burden of proof, this is Internal Revenue Code Section 7491A. The burden shifts to the IRS from the taxpayer. If the taxpayer presents credible evidence on the issue, the taxpayer complied with all substantive rules, the taxpayer maintained all required records, the taxpayer complied with the IRS's reasonable requests for interviews, witnesses, meetings, etc., and for partnerships and corporations, the net worth limitations apply. Credible evidence, the quality of evidence which, after critical analysis, the court would find sufficient upon which to base a decision on the issue if no contrary evidence were submitted. Turning to tax court, turning to qualified offers under Code Section 7430, this is an offer by the taxpayer on specific terms to settle the case. It allows the taxpayer to collect fees from the government. In any administrative or court case brought against the United States, Section 7430 allows a taxpayer to recover reasonable administrative and litigation costs provided. The costs are associated with the determination. The taxpayer exhausted their administrative remedies. The costs incurred by the taxpayer are only associated with the United States and not another third party, the taxpayer did not protract the proceeding, and the taxpayer is the prevailing party. To be a prevailing party, a taxpayer is, is required under Section 7430A to establish that he or she is the prevailing party to recover costs and fees. In order to establish this, the taxpayer must prove 
that he or she is substantially prevailed in the proceeding with respect to the amount in controversy for the most significant issues. The taxpayer met the net worth requirements of 7430C4A. The government does not establish that its position was substantially justified. However, where a taxpayer makes a qualified offer that the IRS rejects and later wins a determination to pay less than the amount they had offered, the taxpayer will be considered to be the prevailing party. A qualified offer is an offer that meets the following criteria. The offer is written. The offer is made by the taxpayer to the IRS during the qualified offer period. The offer specifies the amount of the taxpayer's liability. The offer is designated as a qualified offer under 7430G. And the offer remains open from the date it is made until the earlier of the following. A. The offer is rejected. B. The date the trial begins. Or C. The 90th day after the offer is made. A qualified offer period. The offer is required to be made during the qualified offer period, which is the period of time that starts on the date of the proposed deficiency, which allows the taxpayer an opportunity for administrative review with the IRS Office of Appeals and ends on the date which is 30 days before the trial is set to begin. So as a conclusion, their advice was it increases the pressure on the government to go forward only with cases where they are likely to prevail. It creates the potential to recover fees after the case is resolved. It adds no additional risk for the taxpayer, so why not use it? Now, one difference between tax court and other courts is that other courts often focus on formal discovery. So that is available in tax court, but it is used sparingly. So some examples that allow for interrogatories turn to tax court rule 71. The request for production of documents is in tax court rule 72. There are also depositions and then requests for admissions. Those are technically not discovery, but extremely close and treated similar to other formal discovery. Rather, tax court emphasizes informal discovery. So, ask nicely first that there shall be no formal discovery unless and until the parties have attempted to attain the objectives of discovery through informal consultation or communication before utilizing the discovery procedures provided in these rules. That is Tax Court Rule 70A1, and the Tax Court rigorously enforces that rule. So as an example, you can use a motion to compel or a motion for sanctions, but only if the party isn't complying with discovery requests. Now, in my experience, parties can easily share documents that the politeness and asking nicely works well with the IRS, and there are rules for more formal discovery or trying to do some form of sanction, but the judges really frown upon that and do not like it if a party is uncooperative. The tax court focus is on civility, on informal discovery, on leading towards settlement. 
So certainly if there is a litigator who likes to operate in a different way, then maybe tax court is not the court for you to litigate in. Now, I mentioned the tax court rules with regard to specific motions. The tax court has posted their rules on their website, so certainly you can look them up online, download them, and certainly if you are going to have a trial, it is worth getting familiar with the specific rules that will apply to what you're doing in a case. One last item I wanted to mention for tax court litigation is the Cohan rule. That is at 39 capital F period 2 small d 540, which is in the Second Circuit in 1930. The quote from that is that absolute certainty in such matters is usually impossible and not necessary. This rule specifically applies to George M. Cohan. He was in the business of putting on traveling theater productions. If you are familiar with the movie Yankee Doodle Dandy, that is a biography of his life. But what applies here is that Mr. Cohan was audited, went through the tax court process. Uh, Mr. Cohan was audited and in tax court litigation, what resulted is the Cohan rule, which will allow for some degree of business expenses allowed that would be reasonable for a person in their business. It may allow for two months of rent payments without documents, for example, but it will not get you very far for travel expenses or other expenses that are specifically spelled out in the Internal Revenue Code because the IRS is bound by having specific documentation that substantiates those expenses. So if there is some kind of expense that you are trying to prove for your client, but they do not have the documents to prove that, perhaps the Cohen rule would help them to get some amount of expenses allowed that would be reasonable for them so long as the Internal Revenue Code is not requiring specific documentation for those expenses. So hopefully this has been a bit of a good introduction to you of tax litigation and focusing on some of the differences with regard to tax court. If you are planning to do substantial tax court litigation, I would suggest studying further, whether that would be books or taking courses, that certainly trial procedure would be quite useful to you when it comes to learning how to be in a courtroom. But definitely, if Villanova is teaching their tax litigation course further, I would recommend taking that in the future. That is one that was by distance learning for the beginning of the course, and I believe it went for three weeks, two nights a week, and then at the end of the course, everyone gathered at Villanova Law School to do a mock trial. So we practiced on the Friday and had the mock trial on Saturday morning. 
I found it to be a great experience because I met several others involved in tax clinics or tax controversy work throughout the country. Some of those people I am still in contact with today. Anyway, I hope this was useful to you to learn about tax litigation. Thank you for tuning in to Tax Justice Warriors. Thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.